So we're going to do something different today, something that I have never done. I want to preach a sermon this morning on the genealogy of Jesus. Now, doesn't that sound stimulating and interesting? Just to look at a lot of different names uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, you may have never heard a sermon on this subject. I've certainly never preached one, nor have I heard a sermon on the genealogy of Jesus. But if you'll open your Bible today to Matthew chapter number one, I want us to look not at all of the names in this genealogy, But I want us to look at some of the names and see what we can learn from the earthly ancestors of Jesus. We find some very interesting people in the uh, genealogy, and it says to us that while Jesus' ancestors had issues that they dealt with in their lives, we too, as his descendants, have many of those same issues. And so the title of the message today is, There's a Place for You in the Family Tree of Jesus. Now, let's begin in Matthew chapter number 1. And let's just begin in the very first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, and Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, who begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, that's talking about Bathsheba. Now, that's just the first six verses of the genealogy. And in those verses alone, we learn some very interesting things about Jesus' earthly ancestors. Now, remember, Jesus was God. He is God in human flesh, and yet he's also all human. He's all man. He's all man. And so he has a spiritual genealogy. He's the son of God, but he also has an earthly genealogy and he had all these ancestors in his family tree. And just the names we have read so far, just by what we have read, we can learn some interesting things about Jesus' ancestors and about Jesus' family tree. And the first thing I would say today, just by reading this, it is obvious that there is guilt in the family tree of Jesus. There's guilt in the family tree of Jesus. Now, remember, what I'm trying to say today is that there's room in the family tree of Jesus for you. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know, John, I just don't feel like I fit in at church. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, man, if I went to church, the the ceiling would fall down on me. Or if I went to church, there would be, you know, thunder and lightning because God would not be pleased with me being in the church. No, that's not true. In the family tree of Jesus, there's guilt and all of us have sinned, which says to me, you don't have to be perfect to be in the family tree of Jesus. You just have to be forgiven of whatever it is that you've done wrong. Now, let me draw your attention to some of these names and let's think about some of their guilt. Look again in verse number two. At the very end of the verse, it talks about Judah and his brothers. Now, that's talking about uh, the sons of Jacob. And in verse 3, it says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we read in Genesis chapter 38 that Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. And what happened was Judah's wife had died. 
And so he was in a time of mourning. He was in a time of sadness and grief and loneliness. And one day he was going on a little walk, going to the place of his business. And on the way, he saw a girl who was dressed up like a prostitute. And so he was so lonely and so much he felt like in need of human companionship that he went in and had relations with this lady. Well, what he didn't know was this lady really wasn't a prostitute. It was Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who was dressed up like a prostitute to seduce Judah And it was just a convoluted mess. And so here you see in Genesis chapter 38, something absolutely unthinkable. You see a father-in-law and his daughter-in-law having relations together. And you would think this is the worst thing. This is just the worst imaginable sin that could have happened. And yet hundreds of years later, what do you find? You find Judah and you find Tamar in the family tree of Jesus. Not because of what they did, but because they had been forgiven of what they had done, and their names are in the family tree of Jesus. It's very interesting to me. Now, not only do we see their sins, look again in verse number five. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now, you remember from the book of Judges that Rahab was a prostitute. She was a harlot in Jericho, and yet... She was saved, and we read about that story in the, in the, uh, in the book of, uh, I said Judges is in Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we read that she placed her faith in God, and she got saved. And so we find here a prostitute ending up in the family tree of Jesus. And then, of course, we've already seen it, but look again at the end of verse 6. We read about David and how he became the father of Solomon, and uh, Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, The only problem was Bathsheba was married to someone else. Her husband was Uriah. And so David and Bathsheba's relationship got off to the worst possible beginning, started out in adultery, got worse. David had Uriah, her husband, killed. And so now you have adultery and murder, an adulterer and a murderer in the family tree of Jesus. And it says to me, What I said a moment ago, we don't have to be perfect to be in the family tree of Jesus. We just have to be forgiven. Now, you say, John, you don't have any idea what I've done in my life and the sins that I have committed in my life. And that's true. I don't. But I would find it hard to believe that you've done anything worse than incest, prostitution, adultery, and murder. I don't think that there could be anything. Certainly there's no sin worse than murder. And David committed that sin. And here he is in the family tree of Jesus. And so I'm saying today, in Jesus's family tree, there is room for all of us, no matter what sins that we may have committed. There's guilt in the family tree of Jesus, but that guilt had been forgiven and that guilt had been removed by the grace of God. But not only is there guilt in the family tree of Jesus, there's grief in the family tree of Jesus. There's sadness in the family tree of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of examples I could give just from this passage, but let's just consider some of these. First of all, look back in verse number two and notice that Abraham is in the family tree of Jesus. Now, you say, well, how was Abraham, what was Abraham sad about? Well, he had gone through and went through a lot of grief in his life. We read in Genesis chapter 12 that when God called Abraham, he told Abraham to leave the place where he was, which was the only place he had ever known, and to go to a place that God would show him. And so if you've ever moved from a place 
where you knew everybody, everything was familiar and comfortable to an unknown place. You know, that's a difficult thing to do. And yet Abraham did that. And so there was sadness and there was grief in that. In Genesis chapter 21, we read that Abraham, of course, had become the father of a young man named Ishmael. The only problem was Ishmael was not the son of his wife, Sarah. Ishmael was the son of Sarah's servant, Hagar. And Sarah had been unable to conceive, she and uh, Abraham. And so Sarah said to Abraham, have relations with Hagar and she can become pregnant and she can give birth and that will become our child. And so that's what happened. And yet when the child was born, later on, Sarah became pregnant and she had Isaac. And now Ishmael, who was 13 years older than Isaac, was making fun of Isaac and laughing at Isaac. And Sarah's watching this and Sarah didn't like this at all. And so Sarah says to Abraham, Ishmael can't be in our house anymore. What I want you to do is send Ishmael away and send his mother Hagar away. Well, for Sarah to say that, that wasn't hard for her to do. She had no real sentimental connection to, to Hagar, or, or at least to a lesser degree with Ishmael. But that was very difficult for Abraham. That was his son. And yet God spoke to Abraham and God said, do what Sarah has asked you to do. And so Abraham sent his son and Hagar away. But now think about this. If you're a father and now you're sending your firstborn son away. And so now you are estranged from your firstborn son. That is, that, is, that is some serious grief and sadness that Abraham would have been going through. And so we find here his name is mentioned as one who was, uh, was certainly very sad. And then later on in life, of course, he lost his wife, Sarah, so he had more grief. And then we read about David and Bathsheba. You talk about grief. When they came together and, and had their relationship, Bathsheba became pregnant. But we read that the baby that she uh, was carrying actually died. And so now David and Bathsheba have not just been separated from their son like Abraham was. They have lost their son. And many of you here today have experienced that, or at least some of you have, the loss of a child and how painful that is and how backwards from how we think life should be, that is. And yet in the family tree of Jesus, what do we find? We find this grief, grieving parents, David and Bathsheba, who had lost their son. And then we read about Ruth uh, down in verse number five. And she was another person uh, who had experienced great grief. We read in the little book of Ruth that she was from Moab, and uh, she had married a man who had come there with his family from Israel. And she was probably married to her husband for about 10 years. And 10 years into that marriage, he died. And so you can imagine she would have still been a young lady, probably in her late 20s at that time. And here she is a widow and the sadness that she would have had. And so what do we find? We find uh, this grief that Ruth would have had. And her name is mentioned in the family tree of Jesus. And I'm pointing this out today to say no matter what sin you have committed, no matter what heartbreaking experience that you may have been through, there is room for you in the family tree of Jesus. What is true for those of us who are the descendants of Jesus was true of the ancestors of Jesus, and we've been through a lot of different things. My dad mentioned in the welcome time about these tornadoes that went through the Midwest and the 
southeastern states on Wednesday night, on a Friday night. And if you were watching even the Houston weather before you went to bed on Friday night, as I was, the meteorologist said it's going to be a long night in the Midwest and a long night in the southeast because you've got this cold air mass, 30-degree weather, hitting 80-degree weather. And when that happens, tornadoes are going to break out. They had no idea 38 tornadoes would break out. One of those tornadoes, as you probably saw in the news, was evidently on the ground for 200 miles. Can you imagine one tornado on the ground for 200 miles and the devastation that that has caused? You talk about grief. I was thinking this morning before I left the house. What if I pastored a church in Kentucky or in one of these states in Tennessee where they have been hit so hard? And what would you say, what would you, if you were preaching today or speaking or leading in a Sunday school class in one of those churches today, what would you say to the people in that town who have lost so much today? And I was thinking, I don't know. I think the only thing that I could say if I were preaching in that setting today were to the congregation, I would say, folks, look, what has happened this weekend is beyond my wildest imagination as it is yours. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know this. God understands how we feel. The Scripture says he heals the brokenhearted. God will help us, and we have to help each other. I mean, what else can you say? But there's grief. What I'm saying today is there's grief in the family tree of Jesus. Now, obviously, when we have been through grief, the loss, one of the type of losses that I have mentioned today, or maybe some other loss that you've been through in your life, obviously, after grief, after a loss, loneliness is a feeling and an emotion that frequently sets in and can even engulf us as we think about what it is that we have lost. And so today, if you're listening and you're thinking, you know what, John, I never have thought about uh, Jesus' ancestors, those in the biblical family tree of Jesus, having been through a loss like something I've been through, to lose a spouse, to lose a child, to, to have to lose somebody very close to me and the loneliness. And and so this resonates with you today. I was reading about loneliness and read several articles about loneliness that were very interesting to me. I I found one article from a source called campaigntoendloneliness.org. And here's what it says about loneliness. It says that loneliness increases the risk of death by 26%. Loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is worse for your health than obesity. It increases the risk of high blood pressure. Many people go at least five or six days a week without seeing or speaking to another person. 40% of older people say the television is their main company. Now think about that, 40%. I read another article out of Harvard Magazine. They, they devoted much of their article in the early part of this year in January and February to loneliness, and they had one article in there called The Loneliness Pandemic. And they were talking about how the pandemic for the last almost two years has created severe loneliness. Interestingly, a man named Jeremy Noble, who is a lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health, said this, He said, if you're on Mars and you have the strongest possible telescope that you can look down to planet Earth from Mars, and this telescope is so strong that you can literally look through walls and you could see 
what's going on behind closed doors. He said this, you could find all of the isolated people on earth, but you could not find all of the lonely people. Now, what did he mean by that? He's saying, and there's no telescope this strong, but if you had one that was strong enough to look into people's houses, you could tell who lives alone, who is alone, and who is socially isolated from others, but you could not tell who's lonely and who isn't. Why? Because not everybody who's physically alone is lonely. And not everybody who's in a house full of people is not lonely. That is something that happens on the inside. I thought that was an interesting observation. The article went on to say that psychologists define loneliness as the gap between social connection, the social connections that you wish you had and the social connections that you actually have. And so a lonely person is not just because just you live alone. That doesn't necessarily mean you're lonely. Or just because you live with 10 people doesn't mean that you're not lonely. Loneliness, it comes because you wish you had some kind of a connection, somebody in your life who understood you, and you don't have that, and so that can make you very lonely. I was interested to read, and you may, you may already have read this, but back in 2018, now this was before the pandemic, the UK actually appointed a minister of loneliness. In other words, loneliness had become such a problem in the UK that they appointed someone who could be the minister of loneliness. And the earlier part of this year, Japan did the same thing. Because of the pandemic, Japan, the leaders in Japan said, we've got to appoint somebody who could be over this loneliness problem and help people to make some kind of connections. In 2019, Cigna, the health insurance provider, they did a study saying 61% of Americans report feeling lonely. That was in 2019, and that's what the Harvard study was saying. 61% of Americans were saying, I'm lonely before the pandemic started. And so loneliness is a real problem. Now, as we read in the Bible, we read quite a bit about loneliness. And one of my favorite passages is in Psalm 102, verses 6 and 7. And the psalmist could relate to these lonely feelings. He said this, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. And in other words, I'm alone in the wilderness. He said, I'm like an owl of the desert. Just like an owl is out there in the desert, that owl is by itself, and that owl feels lonely. And some of you today, you feel like that. You feel like an owl out in the desert. You feel like nobody gives a hoot. How do you like that for an owl? Because that's the noise they make. But in the psalmist said this, I lie awake, and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. And so the psalmist said, I, I feel very much like a pelican in the wilderness, an owl in the desert, and like a sparrow up on, like a bird on top of your house. And that bird is all by itself. And many people feel that way. Now, what is the solution to loneliness? One of the things I was interested to learn about this UK minister of loneliness, they, they appointed this person back in 2018. And then two years later, they were evaluating the situation, the state of people there in the UK. And they said this, they said, loneliness hasn't gone away. We have a minister of loneliness, but that minister of loneliness hasn't solved the problem of loneliness. Loneliness is still here. So what is the solution to loneliness? Friend, listen to me. The reason the minister of loneliness couldn't solve loneliness is because 
loneliness can't be solved by another person. The solution to loneliness is God himself. And in John chapter 16 and verse 32, just before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, he said this, he said, each one of you is going to desert me and go away from me and leave me alone. But notice what he said next. He said, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. In other words, humanly speaking, I'm going to be alone. Peter, James, John, you're all going to leave me, but I'm not alone because God is with me. What did Paul say? Second Timothy chapter four, last chapter he ever wrote, last book he ever wrote, last letter he ever wrote, not long before he died. He said, at my last defense, no one stood with me, all forsook me, but the Lord stood with me. God himself is the cure for loneliness. You know, when we're lonely, and we all have lonely feelings. Now, you know, that's just part of life. But when we have that, the solution is to focus not on what you don't have or not on who you don't have. The solution is to focus on what you do have. You say, well, John, I'm so lonely. What do I have? I'll tell you what you have if you're saved. You have God himself, and you have the presence of Jesus Christ and with him at your side, you're not alone. You know, one of the things that God gave me some time back that has been very helpful, it's just a little visual thought and, a little, and three little words. And sometimes I'll just say this during the day, if I'm home or out and about, wherever I am, I just sometimes just kind of stop and remind myself. Here's what I say to myself. Jesus is here. And sometimes I'll just look to the right of wherever I'm sitting or wherever I'm standing, and I'll just, in my mind, I'll just imagine that Jesus is here. Now, the fact is, Jesus is closer than that. Jesus is in our heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I mean, we have him in our heart. But as human beings who are designed for relationships, sometimes we just think, if I had somebody in the flesh, you know, that I could talk to. And so we have to remember that not only is Jesus in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit, but that Jesus Christ is with us even though we can't physically see him. And so one thing that will help you when those lonely feelings just engulf you and you feel like they're going to take you over is to remind yourself Jesus is here. And what that does for me anyway, it gives me peace, gives me confidence, gives me security, just knowing that Jesus Christ is right there with me. And so what is the solution to loneliness? Well, the first solution is God. But the second solution is the people of God. It's not just God. That's the beginning point. And he's really the one who solves the, the deepest needs that we have for companionship and so on. But it's also the people of God. Let me give you a verse. In Psalm 68 and verse number six, it says this about God. It says, God sets the solitary in families. Say that with me. God sets the solitary in families. And so God doesn't want us to be alone. And he doesn't want us just to be on an island with him. Although if we were on an island just with God, we would have all that we needed. God wants us to enjoy the fellowship and, uh, that we can have with each other. That's one of the things that's so important about coming to church. It's not just the music, and it's not just the sermon or the preaching. It's not just the lesson you'll get in your class. All of that is very important. But part of what you get at church that you don't get 
uh, if, even if you're streaming this service at home this morning, and we know that we have many people, we're hearing this regularly, say, who are saying, we're not coming back to church quite yet. We're so thankful for streaming because it helped us to keep connected. But they've said to us, it's not the same being at home. Now, what do they mean it's not the same? Sermon's the same. Singing's the same. I mean, that all is, what do they mean it's not the same? It's not the same because at home, they don't get the interaction that they get when they're at church. God sets the solitary in families, and God wants us to be with each other, and God wants us to draw encouragement and strength from each other. Now, this whole idea about the family tree of Jesus, what have I said? I've said in the family tree of Jesus, there's guilt, and there's grief, and there's loneliness, The ancestors of Jesus experienced all these things. We as the descendants of Jesus experience all these things. But as I was thinking about the family tree of Jesus, I think about family trees. You know, there's been a fascination in the last 10 or 20 years. Ancestry.com, checking your ancestors, your family tree. Is there anybody famous in my family tree? Is is there anybody, you know, uh, of interest in, in my family tree? You know, one thing about our earthly family trees we don't choose which tree we're in, right? I mean, when I was born and got a little bit older, it's not like somebody pulled me to the side and said, okay, John, there's the Redmond family tree and the Smith family tree and the Johnson family tree and the Jackson family tree and and the Kardashian family tree and all these family trees out there. And you choose which one you want to be in. Well, if I could have chosen, I would have chosen the Redmond family tree, but I didn't get to choose. I just was in it. Like it or not, that's my family tree. The family tree that we're biologically and earthly in is based on what we were born into. But think about this. The family tree of Jesus is a tree not that we're born into, but it is a tree that we are born again into. We we had no choice in what earthly family tree we're in. We just were in the one we're born into. But when it comes to God... We do have a choice. And I'm asking you today, have you ever been born again into the family tree of Jesus?